Welcome to episode 104 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in Hannah and James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflix. Swampflix. And we are recording at a comfortable distance from each other. <laughs> you guys read anything interesting in the news lately? Anything going on well, out there? No, no, nothing of note. You know, uh, all my coworkers started working from home. That's weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just keep going in and people keep telling me to go home. So I just keep trying to find toilet paper. Yeah. Well, that's odd. It's I've been gone. out of toilet paper for like a month, man. Yeah. I saw something about how the movie theaters in the state were all closed by the governor. Mm. That's a, another weird detail. Very rude of him to yeah. do that. I don't know why. I like going to the movies, you know? I do remember going to a film festival about a few weeks ago. Oh, <laughs> what kind of film festival? <laughs> it was the kind where you cram into a small theatrical mm. space over and over again with the same old people right. uh, all week oh, long. God. <laughs> Uh, we were the youngest people in that room oh, no. by half, at least, uh, for most of the screenings we went to. Oh. That's how I feel thinking about Mardi Gras, too. Well, Mardi Gras ended two days before the New Orleans French Film Festival began. Oh, God. Uh, so it was like a just Petri dish fest oh, uh, no. for that whole I week. I didn't even think about that. All those old people in the lines. Oh, man. They're all fine. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. I mean, the, the old people that are going to French Film Fest can... They probably have some health care. I think they'll be okay. Do they? They yeah. were higher end old people. That's true. They're yeah, the that's upper true. echelon they of really uptown. Were. Yeah. <laughs> Strolling around, seeing their uh, umbrellas of Sherbo. That festival was at the Britannia for a solid week. We watched nothing but French language films. And it feels like it might be the only film festival of the year at this point. Because everything's yeah. getting canceled left and right. Jazz Fest is going to be in like mm-hmm. the fall concerts are getting canceled it's crazy i was supposed to go to this film festival in june um in rochester new york that i think might not make it now it seems like it's gonna be pushing into the summer so i don't know grim times right now (laughs) yeah sad moments i mean at least we did i feel like if we're gonna go to any film festival before all this happens it should be french film you know it's like you get the bonjour and the bonjour (laughs) You know, it's joyful. So I really did love every second of being crammed in that movie theater and watching those films. Yeah, and it's like a communal one, too. Where like, you see the mm-hmm. same people all week. It's the same space over and over yeah. again. It's much smaller scale than New Orleans Film Fest, the big one in October, which hopefully will happen this year. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yeah, and I'm glad that Britannia got so much business before the theaters had to close. Exactly. Also, definitely support your local movie theaters. In New Orleans, so, you know, Broad Theater in Britannia. And uh, I think AMC is probably going to be fine, but who yeah. knows? Yeah. I saw Broad was talking about donating, like, a portion of their gift card. Yeah, uh, like 25%. To mm-hmm. their staff who are yeah. all out of work right now uh, for obvious reasons. Right. Because we're out of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> and eggs and bananas. That was, like, the yeah. weird thing I couldn't find this week. Yeah. My sister has a very regular yogurt regimen, apparently. And she's in Boston. She has not been able to find yogurt for weeks. And she's really angry about it. She calls me all the time and talks about her lack of yogurt. She sends me pictures of the yogurt aisles. And then uh, I send her pictures of the yogurt aisles here because apparently nobody in New Orleans cares about yogurt because 
Still I buy is. yogurt every week. <laughs> okay. I'm a yogurt boy. Aw, good. And they, they were out of sour cream yesterday. Really? Like, I just don't get it. It's odds and ends. It's like weird things that right. you wouldn't expect. The things that people usually take for granted. Well, it's been a very long couple weeks since French Film Fest. Like, time means nothing right now. Yeah. So hopefully we can remember some details from these movies. They're not all, like, fuzzed out by the chaos. I will say I have been thinking about deer skin pretty regularly. That's good. So, yeah, that's etched in my memory. For sure. Have y'all been able to watch anything else in the meantime? Have you been able to focus on anything <laughs> else? I don't know. With all the chaos going on, kind of fallen into just like reality competition show. Me too. Like next in fashion. I- I'm oh, uh, two episodes away from finishing <laughs> right now. Oh. I'm in love. I watched the series finale last night. Ah. And I won't say anything. It was pretty good. I liked it. So yeah, I mean, as far as movies, uh, not really, man. Just like kind of comfort food. The only thing uh, since the last time we talked that I've watched was Color Out of Space, which I was very excited about. We didn't catch it in the theater, which is I wish I would have because yeah. it is awesome. Yeah, the lights and sounds were very mm-hmm. overwhelming in the theater, like epileptic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, overwhelming. Definitely. And like truly some of the most unsettling, disturbing imagery I've seen in a movie like Cronenbergian. Yeah grotesqueness it will probably end up i don't know maybe being in my top 10 i really loved it it's gonna be a small competition pool of movies that actually get yeah. released this year yeah, so that's who knows? True. Too. <laughs> yeah well that and that's another thing i want to get your thoughts on was like i've heard that some movie distributors are going to on demand and like that might be a new model i think they're charging 20 dollars for you know, day and date releases yeah yeah i don't get the sense that that will put movie theaters out of business immediately but kind of feels like that's where the future is headed uh, I, I think studios have wanted that? that for a long time yeah and theaters are the roadblock like chains like amc demand a certain window so that stuff like mandy could not play at amc because mandy had to be day and date for them to make any money off of it mm-hmm. and colorado space probably fits that mold as well because mm-hmm. it came out really shortly after played in theaters yeah i don't know i really hope that the theatrical experience stays. Uh, I saw The Invisible Man in theaters like two oh, days before theaters how were was closed. Oh, man, yeah. It was great. And I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it, but it was a really quiet, intense movie that people were initially... Like, there was kind of some bratty teens like talking and playing on the mm-hmm. phone for a minute. And then you could watch them like get immersed in the movie and like get lost in the drama of it oh. and like, quiet down and get tense along yeah. with you. And I don't know. I just think that's totally lost when you're at your house. Yeah. Like, they would have just continued to talk over it if they were at home, you know? You, right. You don't lose yourself in the movie at your house the way you do on the big screen. And yeah. And I'd be really sad to miss that. Yeah, definitely. So I was inspired to watch some Shakespeare adaptations, actually because of Children of Paradise. They talk about Othello often. Children of Paradise is one of the movies we're going to talk about later today. My mom taught English in high school when I was younger, and she... Uh, loved Shakespeare and she tried to get the students connected with Shakespeare by showing them all of these modern reinterpretations and she loved Othello especially the Lawrence Fishburne adaptation I've never seen Othello and I'd never read the play Um, so I started watching one that's free on prime directed by Jeffrey Sachs and it's heavily centered on the race aspect of Othello and then set in London 
there is a race-based crime committed by these police officers. Um, the police commissioner is caught making some racist comments about the state of crime in the London police force. And he's ousted. And then John Othello is brought to the head commissioner. He is a black police officer. And his friend, I think his name is Hugo in this adaptation, is jealous. And he feels like he's been um, passed over. So then he proceeds to destroy Othello's life. So I'm watching that, and then I'm very excited to watch Forbidden Planet, which is a sci-fi reinterpretation of The Tempest. I love that movie. Really? I've never seen it before, but I rented it, um, so it's available for the next 30 days. I didn't want to start it today because I wanted to, like, get into the weekend. But, yeah, I'm just going to be digging into, like, Shakespeare all week this week. Are you watching the um, Julia Stiles Othello adaptation as well? I am going to. That's the next one after Forbidden Planet. I'm very excited about that one too. I hear that that's a, that's a very, very good movie. I'm like only aware of Othello because of that movie because it oh, like really? came out like, you know, when I was a teenager and at home. Yeah. Blockbuster era. I guess it was around that time when like a lot of Shakespeare and like Jane Austen and other literary yeah. adaptations were being done with like teens right. in like sexy, cool, fun ways. Yeah, like Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah, and well, also the yeah. like Leonardo DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, right. I remember that and Othello. I think came around the same time, mm-hmm. and that was I don't know. It just made Shakespeare cool. Like I never yeah. thought of Shakespeare's being cool, and then that kind of blew my mind when I was a teenager i will say the last episode of this show Brittany and i watched she's the man which is oh yeah uh it's much ado about nothing uh 12th night oh 12th night okay. yeah and it was the worst movie i've ever watched <laughs> for this podcast before so they're not all great uh yeah. but that one was a little after that like 90s era we were just talking mm. about what about you man what you been watching well movie theaters are closed so i've been watching dvds out of my like shame pile in my house mm. like Movies I've bought at like thrift stores over the years and just never watched before. Mm-hmm. It's like a great time to clear out that stack right. right now. One of them was a film I never saw when it came out and only knew about it that it was divisive. And it kind of blew my mind. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but it's really interesting. It's mm-hmm. called Dark City from 1998. Do y'all know that film? Mm-mm. Wait, is this the like the sci-fi? That's like one of the best sci-fi movies of... The 90s. I've heard that, and I've also heard people call it, like, absolute garbage. What? Yeah. (laughs) Who would... I love this fucking... Like, when I was in high school, I remember... I think Roger Ebert was, like, super high on it. Huge fan, yeah. And I was like, oh, I gotta check this out. And then I became obsessed with it. I think I watched it over 10 times when I was in high school. Like, that was my shit. I had honestly never heard about it till recently. Really? Uh, So it came out in 1998... Uh, in this like theatrical version that spoils the whole movie in this like opening narration. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Uh, so what I got was the director's cut, I think from like 2007, that like cuts that out and like adds a little more like mood building in. It was released a year before The Matrix, Existence, and The Thirteenth Floor, which were all like simulated reality mm-hmm. uh, sci-fi pictures. This one predates all that stuff by a year. Obviously, they didn't all rip it off. It was just parallel thinking. Like, it just happened right. to arrive first. But it didn't make money or get attention the way those other ones did, I don't mm-hmm. think. Besides Ebert kind of, like, cheerleading it. Mm-hmm. It's a noir throwback where this guy is framed for a murder. And he's, like, in this city where it's always dark. And he's, like, <laughs> going up down these back alleys looking to, like, prove his innocence. And mm-hmm. this, like, crime that it becomes increasingly apparent never actually happened. 
Uh, and then it, the movie just sort of blows up the concept about halfway through where these aliens pause their citizens every mm-hmm. night in this sort of like rat maze and then rearrange everyone's memories via injections. <gasps> they like inject fake memories into these people. They're basically like cast players in like a theatrical crew. Like what? different people are actually performing different roles every day. Mm-hmm. And the aliens are basically conducting an experiment to see like what's human nature versus what's nurture. Like how much do your memories and your like upbringing mm-hmm. influence your actions? And it just keeps getting increasingly strange until it ends. I, I had a couple problems with how it resolves itself. It kind of turns into a superhero movie, which is maybe the least interesting things about the matrix as well. You know, mm-hmm. the way that like mm-hmm. Neo learns all these like Kung Fu skills and like flies around. Like that's not <laughs> the most interesting part of the matrix. The world building is, yeah, and I'd say this is the same way. This sort of like giant rat maze city. These aliens have constructed and like the aliens themselves are these like Nosferatu type things called the strangers right. that, and they chatter their teeth when they're agitated. It's Ooh. really creepy. I remember uh, that is the main thing that's kind of stuck with me throughout the years. Like those creatures are so absolutely terrifying. And I think too, what makes it stand out from some of the other films that were influenced by it was it nails that noir thing so well. And then with this creepy sci-fi vibe underneath the tone of it is like, unlike many movies, I've ever seen where it's like you get the film noir and you get this like really out there, weird, trippy sci-fi stuff. And it just, it works incredibly well. And I'm shocked by how well it does work. Cause that director, I've only ever seen other two other movies he's done and they're both terrible. Like the crow and gods of Egypt are both very bad movies. So like, I did not expect much. Well, out of the this. Cr- I like the crow for nostalgia reasons. It's very bad. I, I, I dare you to rewatch <laughs> really? it. To rewatch it. Yeah. Oh, man. I haven't watched it since I was in high school. So. I've been waiting to watch that movie for like a decade. I'm like, oh, I got to watch the crow. You it's know? better as a poster than as a film. I would okay. say that's my the take poster on it. is great. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <Dang. laughs> Another one I watched that was like weirdly trippy was called Wolf Devil Woman from 1983. Oh man, that sounds like just like something I'd like. It's like a really cheap version of a wuxia picture that like uh, Crouching Tiger yeah, <gasps> uh, stuff where they like fly around while yeah. they're doing the martial arts. It's directed by a woman named Pearl Chang, um, who was like a Taiwanese TV star and then directed about four feature films in the early 80s. It looks like most of them never made it past like VHS, mm-hmm. and they've kind of slipped in the the public domain ever since. Nice. Um, this one's like her biggest hit, Wolf Devil Woman. Pearl Chang stars in the film herself. She is a woman who was raised by wolves after her parents were killed by this like emperor demon. Yes. Uh, and she has to use her like animalistic hunting skills to like get revenge on the demon and kill him that's fantastic uh and it's so cheap that like sometimes it's silly like Mm -hmm. her wolf costume is basically like she's wearing a a hat that's supposed to look like a pelt (laughs) but it looks like a plushy doll like it's like a really cute like wolf doll uh and like the demon is like rubber mask like party city like very cheap halloween costume demon but it's also like legitimately brutal like, when her parents are murdered, they're cornered by the emperor, and they basically, like, slit their own throats and allow their blood to drip all over the baby to, like, keep it warm because they bury it <gasps> in the snow to hide it from the emperor. Ugh. And then the wolves find it. And then there's, like, genuine, like, psychedelic stuff, too. Like, there's these really repetitive cuts and these, like, Suspiria-style, like, cross-lighting sequences mm-hmm. and just, like... 
it's just a wildly creative movie. It's kind of got a reputation as like so bad it's good, mm-hmm. but I think it's more just like cheap DIY version of like that psychedelic wuxia genre. Yeah, where like usually those movies are really meditative. I'm thinking of like A Touch of Zen, like it's mm-hmm. like three hour long epics about this like historical journeys like across the mountains. This is like a very simple, cheap exploitation revenge tale about this woman who was raised by wolves who kills a demon in, in like his uh, underground palace. But that, like, bootleg, cheapo quality just makes it all the more strange and, like, really fun and fascinating. Most copies of it are garbage. Like, the public domain transfers are really bad. But I'm still, like, really excited to watch more of her movies now Mm -hmm. that I've, like, seen her pull this off on, like, a shoestring budget. Yeah. Actually, I watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon again recently. I saw it, like, a million times when I was a kid. Yeah? But I loved those movies when i was a child it it did not hold up as well for me watching it again i honestly don't have much of a patience for that genre and actually yeah. most like martial arts films i feel like i get kind of bored because mm-hmm. they're so long and yeah. the sequences between the fights are like very subdued so i don't know it's kind of fun to see like a explosively like colorful goofy hyper violent uh variation on that that's why i like jackie chan dude movies yeah. are always entertaining that's, even yeah. though they're sometimes they're bad Always entertain like, yeah, the more meditative three hour long epic thing. Sometimes the action doesn't outweigh the the lull between the lull. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a lot of movies, <laughs> and we're gonna talk about more movies. More um, movies. A lot more than we usually talk about on this show. Yeah. We watched, I believe, eight total films at the French Film Fest this year. Hopefully that's not all the movies we see in the theater this year. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to frame it. Um, but yeah, first you're going to hear me and Cece talk about the three movies we saw together. And then I'll be back with you guys right after that to talk about the movies we saw together. Oh, yeah. Hey. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. No, you don't play with memory. You deal with it. Because memory is something fragile. I don't remember. And I remember. You know, it's like you pick, you know, you pick what you can what comes out. And I'm glad I did Les Plages d'Agnès because at least these memories are kept somewhere in a film. I am joined for this segment by Cece Chapman. Hi. Who is our sort of official film festival correspondent. Yes. That's uh, most when you'd pop in for the podcast these days. I go to the film fest. Not everyone in Swamp Flicks goes, so yeah. yeah. It's a perfect niche for me. Yeah, you're a reporter on the streets. Ooh, beat kid. <laughs> I did see a couple movies without anyone else by myself. I saw a couple fashion documentaries at the mm-hmm. French Film Festival this year. Uh, one was called Celebration, and it was about Yves Saint Laurent, Ooh. his final show. In, it was recorded in 1998 and has been sort of fought out of existence by his like closest colleagues in the years since. Why so? It's kind of like miserable. Like He's like a mm. curmudgeonly grump who wants to like work alone, and he has these... like. They're almost like henchmen in the movie who like actually do the on the ground day to day operations and they're kind of bullies uh, about it. So no one looks good. It's just like bad PR, I think. Uh. And the movie kind of plays that up like it's kind of spooky. It has this like atmospheric horror score from this guy (laughs) who like did a lot of scores for New French Extremity like horror films Mm -hmm. in the 2000s. And he's died since the movie has been in limbo for the past 20 years. Yves Saint Laurent has also died uh, since the movie was filmed. It's called Celebration, and that's like a uh, sort of ironic title because it's just a spooky, atmospheric document of this like backstage 
misery that all these people are just sort of like not having fun on one another yeah huh and i guess some of that is like that he was supposedly the last of like the hot couture designers who was still running their house that the house was named after that's in the movie's words i don't know that much about fashion history to really like you know back that up in any way Mm -hmm. i just felt like i didn't really get it Maybe there was some like contextual background info about his life or like what he used to be like when he was younger. But just watching this curmudgeonly man only light up for his French bulldog and his like young hot supermodels who like sat on his lap a couple times. Otherwise, he was just like sad. I've seen a couple people compare him to Reynolds Woodcock from Phantom Thread. I can see that. Yeah, he's like terrible to everyone around him, but really truly loves fashion. I would say Phantom Thread in this movie also sort of like linger on sort of nameless women working at actually constructing the dresses that this guy designs and like not getting any of the credit. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that too, but just from not knowing enough about fashion and like his history, I feel like I wasn't given enough like contextual info to really get it. So I don't know. If you're like really interested in his career, it is like this like sort of document out of time. So that was maybe useful in that way, but I I don't know. I felt like kind of out of the loop. Yeah, I mean, that's not a great sign for a documentary where you can't get into it because you weren't given enough information. Like, a film should be a self-contained unit of art. You usually shouldn't have to, like, read a book to get the movie, you know? And this one's like a mood piece, is how I would put it, which is weird for a documentary. Hmm. Uh, And it just feels kind of messy, especially for something that's been cooking for 20 years and had its first, like, draft came out in, like, 2007 at a film festival. Wow. So, yeah, it's had a long time to incubate and kind of comes off, like... A little loose. I had a lot more fun with the other fashion documentary I saw called House of Cardin. Ooh. Uh, it was like kind of like a fluff piece about the career of Pierre Cardin and just like did everything I was missing from the celebration movie. Like it was just like pure pictures of pretty dresses flashing on the screen very quickly. This man's in his, I think in his 90s and he's like still working and still happy and like excited about his work. Um, and he's a total fucking cheese ball. And like, <laughs> When he started in the 60s, he in, sort of injected all this, like, space-age, like, mod, like, mm-hmm. futurism into his work, into, like, fashion as an industry, and then he shifted from couture to ready-to-wear before, like, anyone else did. Uh, supposedly, him and, actually, Yves Saint Laurent argued about who did that first, but he is credited by some people as being the first. And he's still just a corny man who, like, licenses out his brand name to, like, any product you can name, like cars and furniture and telephones and sunglasses and just like any merchandise that will take it i think there's a a commercial jet that was a pierre cardin designed at some point i can see that in like the golden age of air travel yeah that was not recently no we don't design things for beauty at this point when it comes to air travel i don't know if you're like interested in fashion and don't know that much about it it's kind of where I'm coming from. This movie like does a lot more hand-holding and like, explains why this man is significant, what's, what makes his work fun. Cool. And it is really fun. Just his designs are very like playful. and He designed those jackets that the Beatles wore that were like not normal suits like when they first came out, that I want to hold your hand thing. They don't have collars They don't have collars, yeah. yeah. I don't know. He just had like, a fun, playful, mod 60s fashion design, and it translated really well to like a fluff piece documentary. Yeah, no, I mean, like, the mods, like, that's, like, it was leading up to, they didn't fully overlap with, like, Andy Warhol and the idea of, like, pop art as fame and, like, fame as art. And I think that makes sense that this would be a very engaging subject for a documentary. Somebody who was taking art and turning it into commercial mass product. And then they have, like, this whole parade of celebrities come out and talk about how awesome he is. Like, it's not really hard-hitting in any way, but... (laughs) 
Also, it had some like interesting contextual stuff from the 60s. Like his first job was working on the costumes for uh, Cocteau's The Beauty and the Beast movie that we really oh, liked. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful film. So, And, you know, he had that like professional rivalry with East St. Laurent, who, you know, also had a film at this festival. So I don't know. It was just interesting. It's a good pairing info. in their case then. Exactly. Good job, French Film Fest. Well, you and I did see a few movies together, though. We did. We went to the opening night film, which was called Sybil. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the few films on the main docket for the festival that was directed by a woman. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really good, I thought. It's what I like to call like the writer's block thriller. The psychiatrist is thinking about easing up on her like clientele, her patients, and going back and writing novels. And as soon as she does, she just like looks at the blank page and is like, I don't oh, know what no. to write. Uh, she goes down this sort of rabbit hole of, like, clicking on tabloid stories of, like, Robert Durst and, like, Casey Anthony and stuff, like, late at night. And was, like, pensively, like, vaping at her window, which was, like, really funny to me. And she gets called back into her practice because a young actress is spiraling out. She's having this, like, really hot... Toward affair. Yeah, volatile love affair with her fellow actor who is also sleeping with the film's director and it's making this young actress who's either gonna be like super famous in six months or like spiral out and become a hot mess that no one wants to work with in six months the psychiatrist is like oh i don't want to get involved uh with this person's life I'm, i'm busy with my own work but really she becomes more and more involved and fascinated with this woman until the point where she's practically directing the movie herself and like Basically, like, becoming her. It's just one of those movies, like I said, like, the writer's block causes a protagonist to spiral out and go down this, like, absurd rabbit hole. Yeah, like uh, one of the other films we saw a little while back, Ismail's Ghost, which you liked and I despised, uh, mostly because I don't really love the Andy Kaufman-esque. Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman-esque. Surreal. A guy's getting rewarded for being, like, mediocre and uh, difficult to work with. And so, yeah, I just really didn't like Ismail's Ghost. But I did like this, though. Yeah, I would say this genre is, like, more macho normally. Like, macho academic types. Definitely for the writer's block side. I mean, there's two different plots they married. They married the writer's block spiral plot that is, yeah, generally Charlie Kaufman-esque, very masculine-centered. And then they paired that with female obsession, which... That can either go sapphic or it can go like serial murder. I'm going to wear your skin. (laughs) And so, yeah, they kind of paired those two kind of this like psychosexual thriller with spiraling out while trying to write a book, which I thought kind of enlivened the tropes of both genres. Yeah. And it's playing with genre a lot too, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's introduced almost like this like De Palma erotic thriller or like Almost like Halloween, the Carpenter film. It opens in one of those ridiculous um, sushi restaurants where all the sushi's on like a little like... Conveyor belt. Conveyor belts. And so like a guy is just telling her, oh, it's so hard to write a book. You used to be great, but I'm real worried for you to like start writing. And she's like looking more and more like horrified and overwhelmed and you can feel the anxiety building. And then when she gets home, it's dark and it's raining and this Carpenter score kicks in and it's like kind of terrifying. You think maybe like she's going to get murdered when she walks on the front door of her house. It's a really weird Even truth. the typeface for the title of the film like looks like like old 70s like golden era horror title. Yeah. Uh, and the movie never really goes full genre in that way. No. I would say that's maybe one of the like only strikes I could put against it is like there are other films that come to mind that maybe go in more extreme directions like double lover is Mm -hmm. in the air persona but 
I still really thought this was solid stuff. And it becomes kind of like a movie about addiction, like work addiction and alcoholism and... Yeah, and sex addiction, sex addiction yeah. and romantic obsession. So I think it covers a lot. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it was a little weaker for you. Like, it didn't have time to explore all these genres and push to the extreme, you know. Nobody gets murdered. Like, nothing that violent happens. It doesn't push to the extreme of genre because it has so many different themes that it's dealing with just in the plot that it's trying to explore all that like go into her history with her romantic relationships before her current partner with her alcoholism with uh, her relationship to her children and to her sister and to her mother there's like a lot they pack into this movie and it gets i think funny too like that sounds like very serious stuff but the absurdity of how involved she gets with this actress's life just becomes funnier like the more she gets wrapped up in it the comic relief is mostly provided by this director character played by your name's like sandra kuehler she was the star of tony erdman yeah no and she's great she plays the german film director of this french language movie that is being or this english language movie that's being filmed i don't know somewhere in the canary islands maybe on an active volcano on an active volcano it looks like and she is playing you know this director who her lover who she's collaborated with four years has now started sleeping with his young starlet co-star and she's like okay i'm very mad at both of you but i have a movie to make you guys cannot fuck up my career as a director because y'all are fucking and so like her like attempts to like wrestle power back from the both of them because technically she is both of their boss it's hilarious and between the three of them the actress the director and the psychiatrist like we have these like three frustrated women who are trying to like get this art out uh, and it's, like, kind of driving them mad in three different directions. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's really solid stuff. Uh, it didn't, like, blow me away the way Double Lover did because I want something a little trashier. Like, the eroticism... Never goes anywhere. Yeah, not really. But I don't know. Like, Hollywood studios used to churn this stuff out, like, regularly. Yeah, no. This this was a lot of standard material for a Hollywood film of maybe the 80s or 90s. Yeah. But then weirder, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, you know, talented Mr. Ripley or like a De Palma film, but now it's like you only see these at like European film festivals. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It, it was nice. I, I thought it was like really solid. And if you're looking for a new movie in that vein, it's a yeah, pretty good great one. character work. Everybody, yeah. I think, does a really good job as far as acting goes. You know, again, the plot can be a little confusing at times. The themes can be a little confusing, but it's... On purpose, too. Yeah, on purpose. It, but it's it's fun. It's well acted. I think it's definitely worth a person's time. So that was Sybil. Mm-hmm. Uh, We also saw a movie from the 70s that was restored for the big screen. Yeah. It kind of disappeared. Yeah, the director, he made this film in the 1970s, but in the 1950s, he was called before the... House on american Activities Committee. Yeah, and pretty much he was just like, no, absolutely not. So he just left. He went to England and made films in England and France for the rest of his life and just never really came back. So his films never really... They were well-reviewed here in the United States, and they obviously played at some point, but I think maybe because of his his relationship with Hollywood and the United States government, he never really got that big after that. This movie in particular is called Mr. Klein. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from 1975, I believe. It's about German occupation of France during the Holocaust. Uh, we start with this guy played by Alan Delon, who's, uh, you know, kind of like a... Sexy playboy. Yeah, I'm thinking like a George Clooney type, maybe, just like a handsome leading man. Yeah, I think I think George Clooney is, is fair. Maybe not known for being funny, but like known for being very good looking. So he plays a art dealer who is making bank off of these Jewish French citizens 
who feel the like Nazi invasion like closing in around them. Uh, they are selling off their precious art, family heirlooms, antiques, stuff that would go into their estate, stuff they brought with them when they immigrated from Holland. So Dutch masters, Italian Renaissance, beautiful priceless works of art. And they're desperate to get rid of this so they can have the money needed to escape France before they get shipped off to concentration camps. And this guy is just lowballing them. We first meet him in this like fancy silk robe in his like ordained apartment uh, in the middle of Paris and just like ripping off this Jewish man who is just devastated. And he has this sort of like apathetic political like distancing where he's like, I'm not involved. I'm just, you know, I'm a businessman. Yeah, no, I'm just going to get a good price for this art. I mean, I would give you more money, but you want it in pure gold and not in cash dollars. So, I mean, it's not my fault that it's hard to get your hands on pure gold. And so, yeah, he's he's very like, I don't care about politics. Politics don't affect my life, which, as we know in like the world today, people who say that are usually in highly privileged positions because they can afford to not care about politics. And it's kind of like Sybil in that way, where like the more he protests about how he's not involved, he becomes involved more mm-hmm. and more. What happens is he ends up being someone who shares a name with a Jewish French citizen uh, who the police are looking for. They're looking for someone named Robert Klein. His name is Robert Klein. He has to prove that he is not the one they're looking for. He has to prove that he is a pure... French citizen of non-Jewish descent. And exactly. it's in the 1940s. So how do you prove that? Oh, you need to like... 1930s you have to like find documentation of birth certificates but it's europe's in the middle of a war so like calling other countries and asking them to send bureaucratic records isn't like really an option so there's no there's no great way to prove you are who you say you are at that point in time right he has like two options right he can either go through these official channels which is what he wants to do he wants to properly prove uh his like ancestry Or he could use his privilege and, like, money to cash out and leave under, like, the guise of, like, a false identity, which is what all these Jewish people are doing that are, like, selling art to him. And he is so arrogant about the fact that he is above this, like, Nazi reign. And, like, of course he's wealthy and, like, established and... Everyone knows who I am. Of course I'm not a Jew. Everyone's known me for years. I was christened in this church. How could I be? And that arrogance just gets him more and more involved. Like, he could leave almost at any time. What I found fascinating, just on a plot level, was, like, over the course of the movie, it feels like he becomes both a Nazi and a Jewish man. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, he's mistaken for this Robert Klein character, so the Nazis are, like, hunting him down and basically, like, funneling him towards the concentration camps. And then also, at the same time, he's hunting the other Robert Klein. Victory, in his mind, is, like, catching this guy and, like, putting him under arrest for being Jewish. Like, his victory is, like, basically condemning a man to... Death. Death. Yeah, so he's, like, both acting as a Nazi and a Jew in the movie. So, like, his I'm not involved in this becomes very absurd as he, like, basically becomes involved on both sides. Yeah, the movie kind of reminded me of films like Memento or just, like, unreliable narrator films where he's trying to solve a mystery, but the mystery turns out to be him. Um, I was a little surprised that there wasn't a twist at the end where he was both characters because it does start to fall into that Kafka's like sense of surrealism where he's like, no, I have to find this man. It's like 
everyone says that you are the man like even your friends are starting to get confused as to who is who like your friends no longer remember if you're the jewish man robert klein or the french man robert klein or if you're one in the same like that's that's a bad sign the mood of it is very eerie mm-hmm. and like there are parts that feel like a 70s horror film just like he walks into these spaces that are just like really unsettling and uh the score is this like sort of horror like atmospheric sound yeah it reminded uh, me of um nicholas rogue rogue don't look now very much so like in the same way that the way they shoot venice there's a lot of these empty streets and old decrepit buildings and large open spaces within buildings because at the same time, there's a parallel plot where the Vichy government is setting up to round up all the Jews. So you can see them, like, emptying out auditoriums and amphitheaters so they can, like, round all the people up and put them somewhere before they put them on the train. So you keep, like, exploring all these vast, empty auditoriums and airplane hangars and just these huge gothic spaces with this creepy score. And then this other man is just furtively scrabbling around in the shadows so you almost expect like a supernatural twist where he has like a real doppelganger 100 percent. but it works out more like a twilight zone episode where like he gets his like cosmically just desserts Mm -hmm. uh, for acting the way he does and i'd say probably the genre it falls more in instead of like supernatural horror would just be like noir this anti-hero he's not even a hero in any way he's just like a scumbag uh yeah no they initially paint him as being somewhat suave and debonair and becomes more and more like disheveled by the end but the whole time he's not great and the people around him know he is not great and you watch this like scumbag like going down these like back alleys at night uh, meeting these mysterious figures in these like abandoned buildings and it's got a very noir feel to it even though it's like a grimy 70s movie Mm -hmm. and i just thought it was fantastic it feels like a lost gem you know absolutely no i i really recommend people seek this film out if you can get your hands on a restored copy i'm sure it's out on blu-ray or will be soon it's recently restored by rialto films they have not put it out in the u.s yet but i feel like this year it's it's gonna come out soon yeah if you get a chance to watch it in theaters though it's really great because the entire theater is so silent for this one just dead silent and there's a handful of times where the film is funny but you don't feel comfortable laughing so the laughs are always like and then the end of the movie was probably the most silent closing credits I've ever been in. Like, nobody got up to leave. We all just sat in our chairs silently for a good, you know, minute or so before people started rustling around to, like, leave the theater. So I thought that was, like, really fascinating as a theater-going experience. Yeah, it's definitely grim, appropriately so. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's part of, like, why it wasn't, like, a huge hit in France when it came out, because it was only, like, a few decades after... Uh, Nazi occupation there and like the movie is kind of hard hitting about French officials cooperating. The the French, the Vichy government was bad and it doesn't really show the resistance. It barely shows the resistance. It really just shows the grind of the authorities and the Nazi reign. So the French don't get to see themselves as like potential heroes in this. They just see themselves as collaborators. I could see like seeing this like American expat coming to your country and like pointing out what you did wrong during Nazi occupation being like very annoying to them. Yeah. Plus you have this like handsome movie star who's like very tabloid friendly starring this like very serious film. I could see people not taking him seriously, but not really knowing much of that context when we watched it. Like none of that really affected my viewing. And I just thought it was like a really solid piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for like those like Kafka-esque, like down the rabbit hole. Yeah, no, it, was, it was very, very Kafka-esque. So that's Mr. Klein. Yes. Highly recommended. And then we watched the newest and 
final film from Agnes Varda, which was the centerpiece film of the festival, which is called Varda by Agnes. Um, I remember when we watched Faces Places, it felt like a good introduction to like her whole career because it was like pulling all these clips of her still photography and her like art installations and like past movies. I was like, yeah, this is like the Agnes Varda crash course, this movie. Mm-hmm. It turns out that it uh, was a little premature because Varda by Agnes is explicitly that. Yes. It's her on a stage in several different lectures and several different venues, talking to a live audience, walking us through her career. Not exactly from first film to last film, more in this like kind of casual flow of the conversation thing. Yeah. And she just shows you clips of different movies and art projects she's done. She talks to a couple people, but mostly it's just her narrating. And she explains her filmmaking philosophy. Mm -hmm. She calls it cine writing. Instead of writing a book, you're like writing the film. And cine writing for her was technically her, what we in America call style. So the style of our film and the uh, aesthetic qualities of the film was like what she was like. No, no, I think that a cine writing is a better term for it. If you know Agnes Varda, you love her. And this is a very lovable goodbye from a director who knew she didn't have much left in herself. Yeah. You know? I really, it was a joy to watch because this, you know, yeah, it was a, a free associative lecture on life and love and activism and being a woman and art and... It was so joyful because, you know, like Brandon was saying with the Yves Saint Laurent documentary, at the end of his life, he was becoming such a terrible grump and he was mean to everyone. He, you know, seemed to take very little joy in most things, except for his French bulldog and beautiful models. And Agnes is such an opposite figure. She always maintained this enthusiasm and sense of wonder about her work and about art and about the world around her. And it's very infectious. It's one of those things that you can watch and then you want to go make a movie afterwards. She beautifully lays out this theory of hers, this, you know, statement of hers, this raison d'etre of how art and activism are one and the same. Like, that she has never not been a feminist, that that has always been so central to who she is. And she very skillfully walks you through her argument of this. Uh, and I think I think it's really just inspiring. Just watching her just take so much joy in getting all the rest of us riled up and angry about issues that she cares about. She also talks about how like empathy can transform like any subject, even like something that seems mundane, like potatoes yeah. into like transcendent art. Like she just is so full of like wonder for the world. It was just, like, really nice to live in that brain for two hours more than she's already given us. Just because this came up when we were watching David Byrne's True Stories recently, too. Like, Mm -hmm. people who, you know, have a political eye and are cynical about certain, like, power imbalances in the world, still having a sense of wonder for tiny details and, like, eccentric characters and, like, still having this, like, open, creative mind in the face of all that is, like... A miracle. <laughs> it's inspiring. Like I don't. I feel like every year I just get more and more negative about being alive, and it's just nice to see people who are older than me maintain something. I feel like I lost from when I was young. Yeah, and maintaining that level of creativity. Agnes Varda started out as a still photographer, and then later, you know, was one of the progenitors of the French New Wave when she taught Godard how to film using a camera, which she, you know, kicked off you know, one of the biggest, like, 
sea changes in movie history and gets so little credit for it. And then, you know, she made films for a long time. She made documentaries. She did all this stuff. And then she said, oh, what else can I do? I'm in my, like, 70s now. I think I'm going to start working in experimental art and exhibit-based, place-based art installations, which, what? You don't, like, completely change your medium so late, usually. Uh, and just like the joy that she threw herself into this completely new way of expressing her ideas and then built from that said oh I've learned a lot now that I've been doing these like place-based installations and brings that back into her films and then her films started becoming much more documentary monologue built uh, started incorporating a lot more mixed media and it's just it's so fascinating to see somebody weave their way through so many different ways of expressing themselves yeah she was like one of the first adopters of like digital video camcorders when she was like in her 70s yeah she was like oh these are so so light and so oh, now I just carry on my camera by yeah. hand and even this film i would say is creative in a way that you wouldn't expect like a lecture to be yeah like she's very much doing a from the stage like professorial type lecture on her own career but it feels like casual conversation and it's edited in this like really smart way where it flows together and you really feel like you walk away informed, I would say, about her work. Where, like, I feel like I have a clearer idea of what my blind spots are in her career over her entire filmography. Mm -hmm. But also, I just feel like someone who is way smarter and more creative than me, like, leveled with me and shared everything she knew. I felt like it was very, very intimate, despite the Socratic method of her telling me about herself. I still felt like very much that this was her reaching out to me personally as a fan and letting me know that it's okay that she's gonna die and that she's had a great career and she's happy with the choices she made and that it's okay it's okay for her to die because she's just gonna be transmuted into a different type of energy and as long as me the viewer can go out into the world and affect it positively and make art myself like then she's done her job and her other films have that certain intimacy to them, but I don't think she's ever directly addressed all of us who have been absorbing from her for so long to just say, hey, lovelies, I'm going to head out soon, but you guys are going to be fine without me. Uh, I'm tearing up now. Um, just thinking about how much I love Agnes Varda. So yeah, if you have mostly experienced the French New Wave through the eyes of Godard, Truffaut, and the rest of the right bank French New Wave directors, I really recommend you start with this movie of Agnes Varda. She is one of the uh, prominent figures of the left, left bank of the French New Wave, along with Chris Marker, who also made these half-documentary, half-travelogue, half-personal-journal-style films. And even if you feel like you're a scholar who knows everything about her work, I think there's enough anecdotal, like filling in the details uh here where she like shares this sort of like background info of like what inspired certain movies and how she feel it went once they were out in the world um i think it's still worthwhile even if you feel like you know everything about her but i'm saying that as someone who's kind of a novice like i don't know that much about her career i've just seen like a few snapshots and i'm in love every single time yeah. do you have anything to say about this group of movies as a whole from this year i thought it was a good group um at first when we were reading the program and we were trying to select what movies we went to we kind of felt disappointed we were like well they're dedicating the entire film fest to agnes varda but there's not that many films from her being featured and then they're re-showing one of the classic films there's always one classic film that shows on sunday morning as part of just the regular britannia uh, matinee 
uh, series and they picked one that they had shown a couple years before one by her husband um the umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is a great film and i do recommend watching it but you know they'd just shown that like three years earlier so it didn't like feel that exciting or new and then as we were watching this film it became apparent that everything that they selected like a large chunk of the repertoire films that they had selected for the french film fest were films that she explicitly mentions in this and so even though we had seen them, we were like, why are they showing stuff that they've already shown? They could be showing other Agnes Varda films. It just felt made so much sense after we watched this particular film, uh, why they programmed the film festival the way they did. Yeah, Varda by Agnes was the glue, uh, even if it didn't seem like that at first. Like yeah. the uh, Umbrella's of Cherbourg shows up in the movie. Yes, she clips. shows extensive clips of it. And, you know. Because like, she was married to the guy who made it. Yeah. And then Alan Delon who was the star of Mr. Klein, makes an appearance in Varda by Agnes. So yeah, it really is like the centerpiece movie. I'm kind of glad they positioned it that way, even if we didn't really get it before we got there. And one of the other films that you saw on your own, it was 1940s, they made it during the German occupation. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about that in the next segment. It's called Children of Paradise. And it's like the first thing she mentions. She's in like an opera theater on the stage and is like, oh, I'm in this beautiful space. I feel like I'm a child of paradise. Had you not watched that or had I not read that in the program, I would not have known what she was referencing. So, like, all the rep films had something to do with this documentary, which was really thrilling. One of those films, it seemed to me, that we'll never see again, because there was a time when poetry and big budgets seemed to go hand in hand. We don't allow that anymore, because I think the film is, is a totally poetic statement. Every person speaks beautifully. It's very French and fatalistic in a sense, because life goes on, you know, we live, we love. Ooh. One of the things I really like about French Film Fest each year is that they always pull a few like repertory screenings out, like older films that are like classics that I've never seen before usually. Uh, the big one this year that's like hailed as one of the all-time classics is Children of Paradise from 1945. Which I believe at the Cannes Film Festival, they named the greatest French film mm -hmm. of all time. Yeah, and Cashier du Cinema, which was like the French main magazine, they just closed forever recently. They're no longer a thing, unfortunately. Oh, God. But they um, also named it like the greatest French film of all time. So it's got that reputation. Also, it's like legend that it played in paris like yeah, every, every day, day and that sort of thing so it's held to like a very high regard and i would almost say that works against it for me a little bit but i'm getting ahead of myself right yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a film from 1945 it is a grand scale spectacle mm -hmm. film it is a very expensive film just based on the huge sets with like Huge amounts of extras. It's over three hours long. It was like the French answer to Gone with the Wind. That's the comparison it gets because of those like huge crane shots of just like hundreds of people yeah. in like the same spot. And sprawling. Uh, I believe the uh, main set I'm talking about is called like the Boulevard of Crime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is like this like circus atmosphere where like different booths are set up and people mm -hmm. are just sort of like going in and out to mm -hmm. like get their fortunes told. And well, monkeys women. walking on stilts. Which yeah. is great. And it's like a historical... Like, there was a boulevard yeah. of crime. And, right. like, I think a lot of these main characters were based on actual people as well. And another reason that it is heralded as, like, a huge deal is because it was made under Nazi occupation. Mm -hmm. It was released after, I believe, German occupation. Yeah. But 
at the time, Nazis had restricted the industry greatly. And actually, Cece and I did an episode one time about like these like four melodramas that were made around that time. But the rule, I think, that they put in place was that these movies had to be under a certain length. Wasn't it under 90 minutes? 90 I minutes. think so, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and it was to like kind of keep the extravagance of the film industry down, which obviously they were like under wartime, so it, that would make sense. Right. Uh, the way this guy, I think his name is Michael Carney, got mm-hmm. away with that was he basically lied and said he was making two separate <laughs> films. So the movie is very strictly cut in half. There's like an act one and an act two with a hard intermission where it feels like the movie just starts over with like new opening credits. And the credits take a good while. Yeah, like that's your <laughs> yeah. intermission is like the second time the opening credits start. And the story is split in half too. Like I think it fits mm-hmm. the form of the film. Yeah. Basically, there's this woman who works as like a nude model on the Boulevard of Crime. And she gathers in a very short period of time four different suitors. <laughs> yes. Most of them are performers. There's an actor who's like kind of new on the scene and wants to be the greatest actor in all of Paris. And he's also kind of like a blowhard and a braggart yeah, and like definitely. sleeps around a lot. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a very sensitive actor mm. who is a mime. And he has almost like a, she calls it a gentleness, but I almost call it like a feminine quality. Like he's got yeah, this like poetic it's very mime. soft. It's graceful. Mm-hmm. And he is a high artist in the pantomime, of course, because he's a mime, which is kind of like a dying art. The stage actor who is wanting to take over, wants to do this new like Shakespearean style of acting, is sort of the new way. And mm-hmm. this like mime's art is gonna be like it's becoming almost like populist. Like it's it's something for like the drunkards in the upper gallery to like cheer on mm-hmm. big Charlie Chaplin style like physical humor. Yeah, very expressive. And then her other two suitors, one is a murderer. Mm. Uh, he just is a criminal that <laughs> she finds interesting. Like she finds him entertaining because, you know, he lives a tough life. In, uh, rap scallion. Yeah, exactly. And then the other one is Someone who watches her perform on stage and becomes enraptured with her, and he's just a rich asshole. Yeah. And when she gets mixed up in a crime that the murderer commits, she just sort of, like, absconds away with this billionaire who, like, buys her freedom away from the cops, more or less. So she goes away, there's a hard act break, and she comes back to town to watch the mime perform. And she kind of believes that he's, like, the love of her life that she missed out on. Mm -hmm. He's still in love with her, but has moved on and, like, had a nice, normal family in the meantime. Uh, And her presence, like, returning kind of blows that up. And then also she has these, like, other leftover suitors, like the handsome braggart actor who she actually slept with. And the um, murderer who they never really had a relationship except in his own mind. Yeah. But he's, like, a troublemaker. And then the billionaire who she does not... I call him a billionaire. They're, like... The he's rich like asshole. The count. Yeah, he's yeah. like royalty. He feels like he owns her, mm-hmm. and she likes his company, but does not offer him any affection. Like she is there strictly to be his arm candy, and yeah. that that is what he's purchased. And yeah, this sort of like large scale historical melodrama unfolds around those four men in their orbit around this one yeah. woman, Helena Troy. <laughs> yeah, she's just gorgeous. Like every man that sees her. Is like immediately, yeah, like just drawn to her and like proclaiming these ridiculous things. Like the murderer at one point is like, "I would create rivers of blood to give you like rivers of diamonds." Like these, all these men are willing to just like destroy their lives for her, and she's like very cool the entire time. And I'd say she's like refreshingly open about like sexuality mm-hmm. and like 
what she does and doesn't want from each man. She's yeah. like super honest about it and upfront, yeah. and they just kind of have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's very refreshing for the '40s, especially for a movie that's compared to Gone with the Wind, where like Scarlett O'Hara is kind of this demure, like um, you know, she gets sw- literally swept off her feet right. and up the stairs, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was somewhat underwhelmed of the film a little bit in that it had been hyped up in what I'd read about it as just like the greatest film of all time, the greatest French film of all time, which I feel like is an even like higher distinction in some way. And I feel like what I was expecting was in the like longer pantomime acts, uh, I kind of thought the movie was going to slip into like movie magic, like fantasy. I'm thinking of films like Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, which is like pure movie magic or like the red shoes even. Uh, where just reality breaks during like the onstage performances and you just sort of get lost in the fantasy of it and then you pull back to reality. Mm-hmm. That is more on me than it is on the movie. <laughs> like, if I watch this again, knowing what to expect out of it, I might not have been as, like, distanced from what it actually does. Like, my expectations have been reset now where I just see it as this, like, really handsome, thoughtfully constructed melodrama across time. And yeah, I appreciate it as that, even though I was kind of waiting for this like extra movie magic bump that never really occurred. Um, is that a fair assessment of I being a little too hard on the movie? I really didn't have any expectations for this movie. I didn't know anything about it going in. So I think that your assessment of it in general is like, that is totally fair. And I think because my I had no expectations, that was kind of like sufficient for me i thought it was really beautiful it was three hours long and it kept my attention throughout the entirety of the runtime i was kind of underwhelmed by the ending i I felt like it kind of like just teeters off and i was expecting more from a movie that's been so critically acclaimed it's like some kind of emotional like not gut punch but some some kind of revelation but i but i really really enjoyed it my first exposure to so James started watching it before I did and when he started watching it I had a migraine in the other room and the first like 40 minutes take place on the boulevard of crime and then in this bar and all I could hear was like French chatter and like straight up circus music for <laughs> for like 20 minutes and I, I was least. just what is this move what is going on I had to anyway but it was I when I actually watched it, I thought it was fantastic. And the scope of the extras too was just I thought incredible. And then learning afterwards that it was shot in Paris under Nazi occupation was I mean, just unbelievable really. So for me I think it's one of these films where like the story of the like process of making it, like the context is a huge part of why this is an important film. Yeah. To imagine trying to get something on this grand of a scale made while Nazis are occupying your Mm -hmm. country. And then, you know, you read stuff where there were like Nazis working on the set next to like people that had to hide that they were Jewish and they had to work around just all the ins and outs to actually get something like this made during World War II is astonishing. Like, and that just goes to the heart of like, filmmaking and you're going to make the movie at all costs. So that is remarkable Mm -hmm. to me and watching how like lush a lot of these scenes were with like, again, so many extras, especially that first scene, they're walking down the boulevard and they're just all this life. And Mm -hmm. you're like, how did this get made during Nazi occupation in France in the forties? Like 
It's mind-blowing. Yeah. The story itself, and, you know, I agree with you, Hannah. Like, the ending, to me, didn't wrap things up in a satisfactory way where it almost felt like it should have been a triptych. Like, it should have been a three... Piece like I wanted a five-hour movie, <laughs> right? Yes! Why not? Like I felt like there was more story to be told, and yeah. I wanted to like follow along with these characters, and it just sort of ended in this sort of anticlimactic way. I'm smiling because I think that's like kind of like a French tradition in a certain yeah. sense as well to like well, sort it, of leave on like a down note, you know? Well, it is, and one thing I was going to mention: this movie feels like kind of the segue from this like classical way of making movies. You know, like the Gone with the Wind to like a more modern. I was reading some modern French directors kind of shat on the movie well, a little yeah. bit um, as being like the old guard or and like no, we're gonna make these new like French new wave pictures that go away from this style. And it feels like intermediary, like mm-hmm. it's almost that in some points. They wanted the like grimy noir right. like cheapo American schlock. Like they wanted to make American movies. The the younger kids like Varda and Godard and all those mm. people, which is really funny just because that style that they created in response to this aping from American stuff and then we borrowed that French style right. again when New Hollywood came up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. We're like, "Oh, we need to make movies like the French." And it was kind of this like cultural exchange back and forth. Yeah. Uh, whereas this feels almost in a way like they're trying to make like their large scale Hollywood picture. Right, exactly. Definitely. It is long. Okay. Like you feel the length and I actually watched it in three, mm-hmm. like one hour viewings, which I think helped me not get exhausted. But the way the film actually gives time to actors and performers where you feel like you're watching little individual plays throughout the whole mm-hmm. picture, like the mime has his, Perform and then the scene I love where the like actor is like talking shit to the writers as it's like a meta commentary like oh doesn't this play suck? That's such like, a James scene. This like cad <laughs> who's like let the his like fame go to his head and is actively tanking a play on stage and like <laughs> yeah. hamming it up. I love that like I love that scene and like the way that they give the spotlight to performers and it is a movie about acting and performing. The other thing I really love was I thought the dialogue was actually very witty yeah, and smart. Maybe a little long-winded and overly poetic in parts. Paris is too small for lovers as great as we. <laughs> right. But I kind of like it. And mm-hmm. it, that goes to uh, what we talked recently about noirs and why I like noirs as well. It's like they do that. It's like overwritten to an extent, mm-hmm. but it's beautiful. And it's not the way that people talk. And again, like that feels like the old classical way of writing films. Now it's all like we want it to sound as real, real as possible. So there were parts of it and a lot of aspects that I really loved and admired. I think overall, like the story just didn't quite hit me emotionally Mm -hmm. or like end in a way where I felt it on a deeper level. I did love Garant's. And I love it how empowered she was, yeah, too. Yeah, she was like, such she a held solid... held all the cards. Yeah, exactly. And that scene I mentioned earlier where the murderer says, you know, I would put forth a river of blood to give you, like, millions of diamonds. She just says, you know, I would settle for less. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, just the coolest, like, self-possessed woman. And she still has to depend upon, like, the protection and the resources of the Count, who she has no real care for. But she still seems like she 
is self-possessed. She seems in control of that situation. Like, she assesses what he really wants from her, which is, like, the status of having a beautiful woman Mm -hmm. that everyone desires, like, on his arm. And she gives him only that and nothing more. Like, she sections off everything else out of her heart. and Which is, like, really, especially for a 40s movie. Like, I don't know. It's, like, a really strong female presence yeah, in the film. Yeah, like, very aspirational. Yeah, and she, the way that she, like, sets her, and keeps her boundaries with all of these men that are, like, clamoring for her. It seems like she has no real illusions about what beauty is and isn't. Like, she understands that it's valuable as, like, something to give to men in order to get things from them, but in, a like, an honest transactional way, not in, like, some kind of manipulative way. But she's not all puffed up in the head. Like, she just, she knows who she is and what she needs to do to get what she wants, and she's fantastic. Also, the costumes were gorgeous. You know, you can say that with Gone with the Wind, too. You know, these beautiful dresses, but the mime, I think, in particular, like, he had these beautiful, like, silk-flowing Almost like negligees, like baby doll gowns or something. They were just so gorgeous, and you could just feel the silk. It just, like, billowed beautifully. I mean, the attention to detail across the board was just fantastic. I also love the idea of, like, that mime in those, like, feminine, just beautiful sweeping outfits Mm -hmm. being, like, the working class entertainment for all these, like, drunken brutes in, like, the upper gallery of this, like, Mm -hmm. opera house who are just, like, sweating it out and, like, laughing at his, like, over-the-top behavior. It just feels like a different time. Like, where else do you see people going ape shit for mimes? Like, <laughs> this seems like a very specific historical moment. Right. Which is not something I knew was ever, like, the working class entertainment. And I like that the movie gives those stage pieces room to breathe and, like, play out the way they would be as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of the braggart uh, actor, like, disrupting his own... <laughs> performance but i think there is like something to be said about how much the movie does get lost in those pieces Mm -hmm. but i feel like what i was missing was you're in the crowd watching it as if it's playing on stage i was kind of expecting to go into it and like Mm -hmm. lose track of the reality of the the melodrama for a minute and actually like immerse in the fantasy on stage yeah which is something that happens in the red shoes and in beauty and the beast and i feel like i'm just like Thinking of similar things I've seen before and like, oh, why doesn't this one do that too? Because I love that stuff. Yeah. But maybe it is about artifice in a way and how like we're all, and I think the film too, mostly besides some scenes that take place out on the Boulevard of Crime, like it pretty much all takes place on like a stage. So there is something to be said, like Mm -hmm. the artifice of performance and like illusion and acting, you know, I could kind of see maybe that was an intentional yeah. aspect of the film. And then like Paradis, I, I read something that like that's the name for the balconies that people oh, sit in. Okay. So like in England, the film was translated like children of the gods because that's what those are called in England. So it was like the actors are the children of the people the cheap in the audience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they're playing for them and if they do their job well then they're gods. They're these like godlike figures to these people that that you know like support their livelihood. So I I do like the idea of us being kind of like a part of the gods like watching the actors play out on stage. But there's like a subjectivity to that too, right? Yeah. Like when you're in the back 
even though you're watching something from a removed distance, at some point you get lost in the fantasy of it, and that escapism yeah. is kind of part of it. Right, and that's a part of people, like, really talented performers, too. Like, there are so many movies that I appreciate kind of at a distance, and then when I'm totally sucked in and I forget that I'm watching, like, that's how I know I've had a really, you know, transformative experience. Well, I guess what I'm saying overall is, like, I need to see this again. It's a really dense <laughs> film with like a lot of yeah. historical stuff. I didn't know about it when I watched it other than I knew that it was like hailed as like the greatest French film of all time, which is like a ton of pressure. Yeah. So now that I know what it is, like I feel like I could watch it again, but I almost would want to see it on the big screen again. Would y'all ever like watch this at, like at home again? Or do you think like once was like enough for me personally? I think there's about four or five scenes that I would definitely want to see mm-hmm. again. The meta commentary on these playwrights suck and calling out the play for sight. Great scene. I think a lot of my favorite scenes were from that actor character. Frederic. When the criminal guy comes and he like basically says, like, I'll kill you if you don't give me money. He just kind of gives them the money and then they get wasted. Yeah. And he shows up <laughs> to a duel the next day, staggering. How do you feel about him wearing blackface while playing Othello? I mean, I think that's just what it would have been. Yeah. It yeah. didn't bother me. I, I think it is interesting. It was trying to be the Gone with the Wind, the French version, and there's still like some, some racist- racism yeah, in there. But I think the racism in Gone with the Wind is so much worse. Oh, it's like than yeah. in this a film. fabric in the film. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is like, okay, that's how it would have been done. Right. That, so that didn't really bother me. And I also loved the mimes performances mm-hmm. were really entertaining. So yeah, I would watch the movie again just to see those scenes one of my favorite little skits was when the the one with the mime and the man that ends up taking the statue away which is mimicking what's happening in real life baptiste is in love with garance and then frederic is flirting with her and kind of open starting an open relationship with her um so baptiste decides to or the mime in the play decides to hang himself and he has a little like rope and he's like slinging on the tree getting it ready and then this little girl comes and she like wants to jump rope with the rope so he's like fine okay and then he gives her the <laughs> rope and then she's like jumping rope and then she gives it back to him he's like okay well time to start again and then he throws it over the tree and then this woman comes is like oh can i you know use this for my laundry and then he's like ah he's like just getting interrupted in his obviously no talking during the performance <laughs> but i just thought it was like such a cute lo- like this deep kind of like earth shattering grief that he's being interrupted by these like kind of mundane day to day. There, um, There is like a layer of like cynicism or like dark humor. Oh yeah. That I yeah. found really and very open to. sexuality. Like just fucking out of wedlock is like not a problem yeah. in this society. <laughs> it also sounds like we, we are all very focused on like the stage pieces mm-hmm. in particular. Uh, maybe even less so than like the melodrama yeah. that connects them. Yeah, I I think in the second half, Garance's relationship with Baptiste is like it just feels a little sour. You know, she's coming in for a couple of days, and then he basically like destroys his whole family, and his wife is like pleading with him to come back, and she, he's just like totally dumbstruck, and he like runs out to literally chase walks past yeah. his child, <laughs> his little boy, to go pursue this woman that doesn't want anything to. I mean, he does, he is like a tragic figure, I guess, yeah. in that way. But, but yeah. yeah, I would say the like performative set pieces are what connected with me. The mm-hmm. overall melodrama and overall story didn't quite connect with me. But again, like I would, I would watch it yeah. again. 
And I think the characters in general, too. Like, I just enjoyed... The performances yeah. were fantastic. Yeah, I loved... Even that character that's like a blind man, and then he comes into the bar and he's fine, and he yeah. just like does appraisals for people of their <laughs> jewelry. Like he, I just loved spending time in the taverns and on the stages with all of these characters. I think getting locked in a room and watching it on the big screen was like a really good benefit too, because you like can't take or leave scenes from it. You can't like lose right. focus, like. If it ever pops up on the big screen again, I think I'll give it a second shot just because of that. I think it's easier to watch when it's cut into segments, but I think you lose some of the whole point of the movie, which is like, you know, being connected with the performance. Like I could just pause it and go and get like a granola bar and come back. (laughs) Yeah, I think I would prefer to watch it in theaters. And you're supposed to be a little overwhelmed by it. It's supposed to be like so big that it's like kind of crushing you a little bit. Well, a much smaller scale film that we saw at the same festival from 2020. <laughs> it hasn't really gone into like wide release yet. Right. I just can't think of a more like polar opposite. <laughs> yeah. <than just. laughs> well, it's 70 minutes long. Uh, and I believe we could probably do the plot description in a much shorter frame of time, too. I mean, I kind of want to describe it in the fewest words as possible. Mm. It's just yeah. a man that's obsessed with his deerskin jacket. And what's the movie called? Deerskin. I mean, that's pretty simple. <laughs> well, okay, so this is directed by Quentin Depew. Do you know anything about him? I know he did Rubber. Okay, and that's the movie with the killer car tire. Right, which is kind of the same way when I'm talking about description. It's like a movie about a killer tire. A movie about a man that's obsessed with his deerskin jacket. Do you remember those 90s music videos that were like techno music? where the avatar of the video was a yellow sock puppet that kind of headbangs along to the beat. Yeah. Okay, so that's... That is familiar. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That character was the avatar of a DJ known as Mr. Oizo. Okay. Uh, and that is this director. Like, he started oh. off doing oh. these, like, sort of sock puppet music videos, and then he had kind of, like, a breakthrough feature film with Rubber, and he's been doing these, like, sort of high-concept... I'm going to call them horror comedies mm-hmm. uh, in the years It's since. To go a little bit more into the plot, like... The main character, he's obviously going through some sort of midlife crisis or he's leaving his family behind. The details aren't really clear, but he's obviously like leaving something. Uh, he's a middle-aged divorcee in like a midlife crisis. Yeah. yeah. It. yeah. And he's driving this like, you know, boxy Volkswagen and he goes to meet a guy and he buys this deerskin jacket and this guy also gives him a video recorder and he moves into this like inn and starts basically like committing crimes and making a film and slowly building up his uh, deerskin wardrobe. It all sounds weird and it is, but it's also wickedly funny and horrifically violent. I think you're making it sound like he doesn't have a philosophy for why he's Mm, killing people. He has a strong philosophy. It's very clear what, what his purpose for killing people is. Well, explain it. Yeah. Um, he just loves his deerskin jacket so much, and he thinks it's so beautiful that no one else in the world should have the right to wear any other jacket. No jackets. So anytime he passes a mirror or like his reflection in like a car window, he just stops to admire the mm-hmm. killer style yes. of his jacket. The killer style. <laughs> <laughs> and then that escalates. Like he starts filming little videos of the jacket and like starts talking to himself in the jacket's voice. Mm -hmm. And then he just decides that there should only be this one jacket in the world. And I'm I'm going to murder 
everyone that has a jacket and steal their jacket. Leave the bodies where there are, but, <laughs> but like bury the, bury the jackets. Dudes. Yeah. He also meets this bartender who is an editor. Like that's her passion. So he starts sending her these videos to try to edit. And he begins his dream of eliminating all the other jackets by like getting people to bring their jackets under the pretext of filming a scene and then he records them swearing that they will never wear a jacket as long as they live and then putting their jackets in his trunk and then he pays them and then he drives off with the jackets and then his jacket says there's no way we're going to like fulfill our dreams if we're if we go this slowly and then it's like obviously the next logical step is to begin murdering people and he only uses, like, objects that are, like, within his reach. Like, someone just yeah. gives him the camcorder for free as land map right. with the jacket. His murder weapon is a fan blade <laughs> from his, like, ceiling fan in his little hotel room. Yeah. He never would have thought to edit this movie together. He didn't, doesn't know what an editor is. And just happens right. to stumble upon this, like, bartender who's mm-hmm. bored. And she, like, offers to edit his movies. He, like legitimately does not know how to make a movie (laughs) declares that he's like this filmmaker right yeah so it's like an absurdist farce where like this man is just so empty-headed all he cares Mm -hmm. about is his jacket yeah and he'll just grab any resource within arm's reach to like commit crimes in its honor uh, until other people recognize how beautiful it is so the way we're describing it probably you know we are getting across like how farcical it is and the black humor of it but I honestly, like, I took something away from it, like, the artist's vision of, like, you're going to make this thing happen, and you're going to, like, do some criminal shit and mm-hmm. rope other people into it. And at the end of the day, it's like, he made some kind of art. I mean, it was, like, fucked up and, like, <laughs> brutal. But I, like, I, I don't know. I, like, got more out of this movie than just the, like kind of service level like how absurd <laughs> it is i did too but i had the exact opposite take like you're making him out to be this like folk hero no who, like but, created like diy art no, 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 no. the way i'm taking it is like the director himself is sort of poking fun at the idea of even being a director that you have this vision it's insane you're roping all these people they're working long hours you're trying to like articulate the stupid thing that's in your head. No, I'm not trying to make him out to be the hero of the film. He's like a joke, a joke. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I see it as like the director saying, this is me. Like I'm kind of a joke. Like I'm the dude that made a movie about a killer tire. And yet somehow that caught on. That's accurate, but it's only a small part of what I think the movie's about, which is just macho vanity mm-hmm. in general. And that too. Yeah. yeah. But that feels like some self-reflection on yeah. his part. And the thing about Rubber is like, there's a lot of fourth wall breaking where it talks directly to the audience. And the philosophy of Rubber is the philosophy of no reason. Like, it's like, why does this happen? Why is this car tire telepathically killing people? It doesn't even, like, crush people physically. It, like, uses mind powers. (laughs) It's so silly. Uh, But it's, like, because no reason. Mm -hmm. Like, the absence of reason is, like, the purpose of that movie. This one is not that. This is, like, a joke at the expense of, like, macho narcissism. Mm -hmm. You have this, like, middle-aged, gruff macho man who wants to return to, like, manly times he goes to this like (laughs) old rustic hotel with like this wood paneling Mm -hmm. uh the fringe on the jacket is like very like old school hunter vibes Uh and like yeah 
He's basically dressed like Terrence Malick. He's got this like leather deerskin <laughs> uh, hat and like gloves and everything. Nothing really fits him particularly well, but it reads as like hyper masculine. Yeah, um, and that's what he I th- believe is responding to. And I think that yeah, the narcissism of making a movie about a cool jacket I think is part of that satire. But I think it's like just really just an, a joke at the expense of like male narcissism right. in general, especially because that look. It's supposed to demonstrate that you're this wild, rough and tough guy, and you and like the the thing about masculinity is it's like powerful, or it's supposed to be. It's supposed to say that you're a survivor, and this guy is just like kind of waffling from. He's buying all of like his jacket, the pants that he gets are all like exorbitantly expensive. The hat he gets from a man who kills himself and <laughs> he lo- just like takes his I hat off his scene. head that seems fucked yeah he so he's like done nothing to deserve the connotation that his outfit gives him but he's so wrapped up in the image and the style even further than that he can't make this movie in the honor <laughs> of the jacket by himself because he's not a filmmaker he doesn't yeah. know what he's doing but he takes all the credit as the auteur while this like bartender this woman is doing all the work yeah. for none of the credit yeah. um, and like providing structure to this like art project he's created yeah. with a body count. Right. Um, and he's just lucky that she's like into what he's doing. Yeah. And that she is willing to finance his film because he has no money because he spent all of his money on this jacket and his um, ex-wife has cut off all access to their joint checking account. That goes to that whole like auteur theory where it's like, ah, the director, he has the vision. And Mm -hmm. it's like, no, there's a thousand people around him, editors, Mm -hmm. financers that make this shit actually happen. And yet he gets all the credit. And this seems to be like kind of jabbing at that a little Mm -hmm. bit. I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. She's just trying to like scrabble something together out of all this raw footage that he's, he's shot. And I just love how overqualified these two actors are. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Jean Desjardins is like an Oscar winning actor from mm-hmm. The Artist. And like, Adele Hanel is in Portrait of a Lady on Fire yeah. right now, which is, I would say, probably the most prestigious film of the year so far. They don't belong in this <laughs> cheap horror comedy but, that gets like really violent and silly, but they're like straight faced commitment yes. to the bit. They're not like winking at the camera like Sharnado yeah. style. Like they're really fully committed to right. these absurd characters. And that honestly like feels like the make or break right. thing for this totally. movie is that tone of like playing it straight. And yeah, Desjardins, like I feel like he carried this movie mm-hmm. so much with that performance. Like every time I saw him <laughs> on screen, I just like I couldn't stop laughing. Like mm-hmm. he, the way he's posing in the mirror, <laughs> the, just everything about his performance was I don't know. I, I found it to be so entertaining. Yeah. I loved it. Like, this is probably my favorite movie I've seen this year so far. Yeah. And they both seem like they totally understood the point of the movie and they were 100% on board, like you said. And I think they both had a great time. Or it seemed like they did. Like, they both had a lot of fun. And I was surprised by how much the audience had fun of this movie, too. Like, Yeah, it could have went either way, I feel like, especially with the older crowd. Yeah. French Film Fest, like, I could have seen it getting maybe some groans or some, like, kind of just, what is this? But, no, everybody was sort of on board. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like everyone got it. 
I laughed a lot. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I laughed more than any movie I have in a long time. Yeah, exactly. And it made a really fun, like, macho counterpoint to In Fabric, mm-hmm. which is another killer uh, mm-hmm. piece of clothing movie from recent times. Yeah, and I feel like they both kind of share that off-kilter sense of humor. That's like, it's this, like, delicious laughter that I never imagined having. And they both get really violent when they have to, yeah. Uh, which is like shocking considering how like how much fun you're having and how absurdist like the comedic remove is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, we saw one last film. It was the closing film of the festival. Yes, and it was uh, Matthias et Maxime. I hope I said both of those names correctly. It is the uh, most recent film by Xavier Dolan. It was released this year, actually, and it, it was the closing film for the festival supposedly it was the u.s premiere yeah which is very cool i'm glad we got to see it so um matthias and maxime are old friends um they're college age now i think one maxime i believe is a lawyer or a stockbroker he's yeah, a businessman he, he's a business boy <laughs> yeah so they are at this um this kind of summer house party uh with their friends they have like a very close friendship. They've known each other for a long time. And um, the little sister of one of their friends kind of recruits them to star in this movie. Uh, and they don't know until after they've been recruited that the scene is them kissing. So they have apparently shared a kiss in the past. They kiss for the movie. And then the rest of the film kind of follows both of their reckoning with their own lives and their relationship as Matthias plans to leave for Australia. Um, So it's just kind of building. They share some more scenes at other parties. They kind of cross paths in other ways. And especially Maxime is kind of coming to terms with his feelings for Matthias, especially having like being kind of a straight laced man in a serious relationship with a woman. But he's like doing so from a distance. Like, yeah, they should be using their like last two weeks together as like lifelong friends who are about to be separate for the first time forever. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be like saying goodbye in this like, right. heartfelt way, but he's like scared of his feelings for his best bud who he now wants to kiss a bunch. Right. <laughs> um, so he like just avoids him for those two weeks. Yeah. And it's really hurtful to Matthias too. Like they, they have a going away party um, for Matthias and Maxime's mother has kind of orchestrated this. They have gifts for him. And then she asks um, Maxime to, you know, give a speech for Matthias. And it's really like clipped and kind of unemotional. And everybody's very uncomfortable because they obviously know that these two are very good friends. Like it doesn't make sense. Um, So yeah, and it's really kind of like heartbreaking because Matthias is this very, very sweet guy who's going through a lot with his family. He's trying to like disentangle himself from his mother who he's been taking care of who you know has a very like contentious relationship with him so it it's it's it was hard to watch especially maxime and his interactions or non-interactions with matthias i mean what i would say just in general is like there are a lot of party scenes in this movie yeah where like there are these group dynamics especially among like about to be 30 bros like hyper macho douchebag idiots (laughs) those felt very real and like very like lived in 
and like studied and observant, mm-hmm. especially about like the body language between like what's normal and what's gay. Like right. how can men touch each other in like a socially acceptable, like straight way versus like what's intimate touching. Uh, the movie's like very like keyed into that small like yeah. difference. The little thumb rubs on the shoulder. And then it goes away to these like house scenes where like you see their separate home lives mm-hmm. and like the different miseries that come from that. Uh, and that's where the movie gets kind of lost in the weeds a little bit. That's where it kind of fell apart. For it. Mm-hmm. I, di- I didn't like not enjoy this film, but like you said, Brandon, like this party scenes to me were the movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. And yeah. like, I honestly, we could have had a whole movie of just the party scene and their them interacting and figuring this out, like that would have been much more intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Like, cause that first scene where, you know, they're at the party and then they kiss and I was like, Oh, I'm intrigued where this is going. And then it does sort of go off the rails a little bit into their separate lives. I don't know. I felt like the heart of the picture was the social dynamic of them with their friends partying mm-hmm. or even like the old people yeah. throwing their the own parties. People, yeah, yeah, that I was really good liked too. that yeah. scene actually. But yeah, just sort of, um, I thought the cinematography was really good and like mm-hmm. all that just, man, it should have been much more of like an emotional gut punch than it ended up being for me. Okay. So like Xavier Dolan is 30 years old and he's got eight movies to his name and yeah. he started making them when he was 20. This is a pattern for me. I have not seen his like two biggest darlings, or maybe his three biggest. I think Lawrence Anyways, I Killed My Mother and Mommy, or like his mm. three biggest hits, critically. Mm-hmm. I've not seen any of those. I, what I catch are these like sort of random movies like this that just sort of pop up at a film festival. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see what that new gay weirdo is making <laughs> again. And I feel like th- this is a pattern where like, there's so much impressive stuff that I really want to love it. Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of like undercuts itself a little bit so that it's frustrating. Yeah. Like, why isn't this great? It's so close to great. Like you said, the cinematography is like really fun and exciting and mm-hmm. experimental, I would say. Yeah. Uh, the party energy is really chaotic and grating, but like mm-hmm. in a purposeful way. And the needle drops he picks, like the songs on the soundtrack are just so erratic yeah. and like unpredictable. <laughs> There's a point in this movie where um, Work Bitch plays that, like, I had no idea yeah. that was coming. And it was, like, <laughs> transcendent almost. I was like, wow, this is art. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when the movie just sort of, like, undercuts itself a little bit with these, like, sort of less inspired, sort of dragging mm-hmm. moments of melodrama. Especially, I think, my, my main problem with the movie, like, structurally, is that these two men come together at the beginning, they kiss, and then they separate and have these, like, home lives mm-hmm. where they're, like, miserable and, like, obviously yearning for each other. Yeah. And they should come back together and have another intimate moment. That happens again, and then I feel like the movie should have stopped. Yeah. Like, there's, like, an obvious, like, stopping point, and then it goes on for another 20 minutes mm-hmm. where I feel like the last act of the film, I didn't learn any new information. I didn't feel anything new or, like, know anything new about the characters And I just felt like if it had cut itself off a little earlier, I'd be like way more enthusiastic sounding about it. Yeah. And it's a movie I liked a lot. I think the middle meanders a little bit. And I think that would have played a little bit better uh, with the last like 15 minutes being like the point right before where you're talking about. Like they have this going away party for Matthias and then they go to another house party and the tension between the two is building like antagonistically, but also obviously like sexually, like there's a lot that's unsaid between them and 
uh, Matthias is going to leave in like two days. So the kind of slow built up to that moment of tension and then it like cut and then the rest of the movie happened. And so the inertia was lost. Well, like, the real thing is that these two men have something between them that they need to work out and talk about alone. Mm -hmm. And the sort of tension of the party scenes is they're not alone. They're, like, heavily viewed by everyone around them. And even their kiss, they're, like, supposed to be in this private room, like, uh, recording a film as this art project. And all their best bros are outside the window looking at them. And they don't get that intimate moment. So Mm -hmm. when they finally do, it's just, like, the whole situation kind of blows up. Like, you kind of lose what's keeping the tension alive, I think. Right, yeah, definitely. It's hard to say like, you know, oh, it would have been better if they would have done this or that, but I kind of feel like if you would have had that final climactic, sensuous moment between them, and then he goes to Australia, like next scene, he leaves, and you know there's this like kind of unresolved thing, that would feel like tragic, and that would like connect with me more, but it actually drags it out, like you said, for like 20 more minutes. And then it sort of ends on this kind of like... Ambiguous sh- note. Yeah. 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 And not like, ambiguous just, in yeah. like a compelling way. It's just kind of like... Yeah, okay, you kind so of shrug either, your shoulder. You're like, yeah. oh man, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the flaw of the movie for me. There's one more major flaw too. <laughs> Which, <laughs> one of the two leads is way more compelling yeah. than the other. Yes. Yeah, the other, very... I don't want to say unlikable, but just his character, I thought was... It's kind of like an old-fashioned conundrum to me. It's He's like, I can't be into my best friend that I've been into forever and everyone knows mm-hmm. about it because I'm straight and I have a straight relationship. Yeah. And I have a straight job. It's like bisexuality doesn't exist in this movie. Right. Like It's like a very 90s to me, like either or, he's either gay or straight thing. And that he's going through that. Whereas the character who's played by Xavier Dolan himself has like a way more complex home mm-hmm. life and like his stuff I don't think was as compelling as the party scenes but at least was more compelling than the business bro's right. like own internal conflict and I feel like we get way more of the business bro dealing that with this shit. That is true. Yeah. yeah. I do agree with you that it, it it is like kind of a 90s conundrum. I do think that everybody around Maxime seems to has like he's the one with the complex. Like right. when the old women are like watching the movie that they've made on the couch and they're just like, ooh, look at the kiss. And they're like totally fine with it. They have no, you know, kind of feeling one way or another. I'm sh- I got the sense that like he just has these expectations for himself. But, you know, that being said, it's like not a struggle that I'm that interested in especially compared to Matthias. Yeah. It's just so, I don't know. There's something like really cliche about like the fact that he's like in a suit. Right. He's supposed to be like climbing this like corporate ladder. Right. uh, I'm so straight. Right. I'm the straightest. I did enjoy the, like the moments right after they watched that film and he's with his girlfriend driving home and he was like, it's clear that you're still upset about this. And she's like, no, I'm fine. I don't know know. what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like totally forgot about that. Like, I think those moments work for me where his like, it's like exposed how ridiculous his his line of thinking is. But I just don't like dwelling upon it for upwards of half an hour. Where it kind of worked for me a little bit was where he like has to go on this like business date with like a new client who's like an ultra douchebag. Mm -hmm. I like that contrast a lot. Yeah. And there is like a sensuous touching exchange between them a few times and it's like 
he can't read that scenario. Like, are they flirting or is this just like how men touch? Mm -hmm. And like him navigating that, I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know that it goes anywhere, but. No. Yeah, it pretty much ends at work, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everything ends at work, bitch, eventually. (laughs) But that, I mean, yeah, I feel like there was more that could have been explored there. Yeah. That is part of like male bonding is like, we're going to wrestle and like slap towels in the locker room and. It is a little homoerotic, and what yeah. is the line? Mm-hmm. But it didn't really go deep enough into that, yeah. I felt like. I got more out of the opening party scene where like, I hated every one of those men immediately. Uh, they were like so obnoxious and gross. It reminded me of Baton Rouge like in the worst way. <laughs> totally. Uh, but yeah, like I got so much out of that group dynamic, which felt very real. That like almost this extra exchange didn't mean as much. Other than that, yeah. it was him trying something new with a new person. Yeah, the, I mean, the last thing I'll say about the party scene stuff is like, you know, we rewatched Krisha. Uh, oh yeah. Recently, there's something I love about certain party scenes or group gatherings of a lot of people, and there's so much energy mm-hmm. and multiple conversations, and when a film can capture that kind of chaotic like her smell yeah her smell is another one too like man that's so enthralling mm-hmm. to me and like that was the biggest draw of this movie was like yeah at its best it got at that energy of like oh my god there's so many people and everyone's talking and but i'm being watched by that that, that morven collar film the lynn ramsey movie where uh-huh. she goes to that big house party and there's like the bonfire oh that was mm-hmm. a great that's a great that's example bizarre, too yeah but i love that and this that was the best part of this film for me. I just wish yeah. it had a little more outside of that or just do that. I don't know. Honestly, I wish it had less. I think it, there is a great movie here that just needs like a tighter edit. And I feel like I've had that problem with him before. The material is so strong. Everything on screen is great. There's just too much of it. It's a little unfocused. Like if someone had like yeah. kind of pared it down a little bit, it could be like something I'd be. But again, like you said, he's 30 years old. He's made like so eight movies yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. like he's got a long career ahead yeah. of him and i have no doubt that he will make that movie and maybe the three you know critically acclaimed ones mm-hmm. are what i'm missing so i don't know i should probably go out of my way to watch one instead of just catching them as they come along <laughs> i will say like i think it was pretty striking to me how different i felt towards the end of this movie than i um during deerskin like when deerskin ended I thought that was a perfectly edited movie and it ended and I was like shocked and I was kind of it was like I was a little upset because I wanted to keep watching it but I was at the same time totally satisfied and in this movie after the moment where uh, Maxime and Matthias have their big kind of erotic moment together the screen goes to black and I thought oh is that it is that the and then it kept going and I thought oh no it's, it's and I feel like Every time I felt that during a movie, it's like a sign that something wasn't done quite right. Like I'm taken out of it. Like I, I'm expecting the ending, and then I'm I like have to get reinvested. Yeah, it feels a little sloppy. Yeah. When something isn't like crisply cut off when it needs to be. Yeah, you can de- definitely feel kind of like the ragged end. But I mean, that being said, it was still I. I mean, I still, still as far it was as a great like movie. personal preference, if you're comparing Deerskin to like Children of Paradise. Give me a 77 minute where I'm going to want more mm-hmm. after like it's over like, damn, I want to stay in that world right. a little bit longer than like a three plus hour thing. You're like, whoo, I'm exhausted. Well, it's a, it's a different aesthetic. I get it. But 
I think that's why I love Deerskin so much mm-hmm. out of these films. It's efficient. It's yeah. so efficient. And like, I admire that. Yeah, I will say, like, out of these three movies, I liked Deerskin and Children of Paradise the best. And they were both worlds that I wanted to continue spending time in. Yeah, Children of Paradise, like I was saying before, I could have, if I'm already going to commit three hours, well, just give me a third story and let's stay here for five hours. Right. Or it's Deerskin where it's like, hit me like, you know. Hit it and quit it. Hit it and quit it. Yeah, that's (laughs) it. Hit it and quit it. And then I still want more after it's over. But yeah, one of the two. Anyway, I liked all all the movies we watched. I will say Deerskin was my favorite new movie that played at the festival. Um, Cece and I talked a little bit earlier about this movie called Mr. Klein from the 70s. That was uh-huh. my favorite film overall. Uh, but as oh, far as really? like new releases, new to this year, films you mm-hmm. should like keep an eye out for, Deerskin, yeah. I think will definitely come back up. When we do Best Movies of the Year, if the world still exists um, right. at the end of the year. Wow, what a grim note in the podcast on. Appropriately grim, in my opinion. So yeah, we all liked Deerskin a great deal, I think. Yes. Yeah. Also, um, the opening song in Deerskin is like one of my favorite songs now. It was just super groovy. Where he takes off his old shitty jacket and stomps it down a gas station toilet. Exactly. Great film. Yeah. Cinema. Well, I will post in the notes of this episode, a link to all of the films, a review for each and sort of just a roundup of them all ranked. Um, I'm going to try more to like put like links to pieces we've written and like the notes mm-hmm. of the episodes instead of just linking to the website. So if you want to hear more about each of the films, or if we just talked so fast that you want to like <laughs> see the titles like clearly written out, that will be in the notes here. And we'll be back in two weeks, I believe with an episode about bootleg cheap, DIY drag movies uh, that me and Brittany are going to do. You know, things are very weird right now, so Mm -hmm. who knows if that'll actually happen and if it'll happen on time, but hopefully it will. Uh, And I want y'all to watch movies in your house. Uh, Yes. Keep doing that. (laughs) And listen to this podcast in your house, too. Oh, yeah. If you're, you know, have some time to kill, why not uh, do it listening to Swampflix? And tell other people about it. Yeah. Let it spread like, like a virus, like a good virus. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>